0: Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosin,
1: And this is episode 83. It is a pleasure to be here for another very busy episode. We've got many, many comments to go through. We also will be speaking with Tom Decker and Yvonne Peters about that significant victory in Canada that I talked about last week where these proposed standards for service dogs in Canada have been abandoned. It is... A textbook advocacy case, and it's a testimony to the power that we now have as individuals who collaborate on an online advocacy project. So we will talk with Yvonne and Tom about how it was done in Canada. Last week on Mushroom FM's Technology Magazine Show, the Daily Fiber, which you can hear at 3 a.m. or p.m. Eastern every weekday on Mushroom FM, I did a piece on the new Alexa Blueprints feature. If you've not heard of this, it's available in the United States only for now or for people who have U.S. Amazon accounts, and it allows you to create your own personalized Alexa skills that you can run from your account. You can't make these publicly available at this stage, and it's easy as, man. All you have to do is complete this web-based form, and you can make your own skills. So I will demonstrate this feature. We have had a lot of requests from people who missed the Daily Fiber last week, saying, can you include this on the blind side? Because we really want to understand how this works. And so that will be coming up later in the podcast as well. I have updated my blog post on Ira. I've had so much response to this blog post that I've decided to keep it dynamic. And when significant items come up, I will add to the blog post. And you'll find that at slash That's mozen.org slash A-I-R-A. Bonnie and I were on the news recently through NewsHub, which is one of our national media outlets, and they got hold of the fact that we were using IRA and were really interested in this. And they did what I think is a very good and accurate piece on IRA and the impact that it can make on a blind person's life. Now, the good news is that IRA is seeking to expand its reach to New Zealand, Australia, and the United Kingdom by way of a trial. And if you would like to try this, the deal that they're offering you, is the ability to get 200 minutes for the usual cost of 100 minutes, but using your smartphone's camera rather than the glasses. You obviously have to appreciate that you'll be using the service during the U.S. hours, so it'll be closed between 1 a.m. and 7 a.m. Eastern for the moment, which would be, for example, peak hour in the United Kingdom if you're traveling, And, of course, it would not be available to you when you're heading home if you are in New Zealand and Australia and maybe heading out for a meal. So they're upfront about those caveats. You can be aware of that. And that would be one of the reasons, I would think, why there is a discount at the moment while they assess the implications of providing the service to a wider audience. If you would like to apply to be a part of this trial and you live in New Zealand, Australia or the United Kingdom, Then I have put the link in the show notes and you can check out the show notes either in your podcast clients or on the website. The Mosin Consulting blog now does have all the show notes for recent episodes of The Blind Side. As soon as we publish, the show notes do go up in the Mosin Consulting blog. So it's really easy to get to them now and choose that link and make your application for the IRA trial. Also, if you want to watch the news piece that was done on The way that Bonnie and I are using Ira, I've put that in the show notes too.
0: It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side.
1: As we mentioned briefly in last week's episode of The Blind Side, there is a happy outcome to a podcast that we featured last year regarding the proposed Canadian service dog team standards. This was an issue that created a lot of controversy, and we got a range of perspectives on this issue on the blind side last year. Now these standards have been abandoned. It does seem to be an advocacy victory, and I thought that we might find out about how that advocacy victory was achieved and what this means for the future of service dogs in Canada. And to tell us about that, I'm joined by Yvonne Peters, who was on the blind side when we featured this last time. So welcome back, Yvonne.
2: Hello, nice to be back.
1: And also Tom Decker, who has been rattling the chain, as it were, and doing a lot of advocacy through social media and other means. Welcome, Tom. Good to have you on The Blind
3: Side. Thank you. It's a great pleasure and honor to be here. Now, we assume that people who
1: would like to brief themselves on this, who may not be familiar with it, can go back to the episode on The Blind Side, where we covered this extensively. Can I start with you, Tom, because this really pushed your button, right? I mean, you really got galvanized by this on the social media.
3: Yeah, well, what happened was that we got that letter, as everybody knows, around the 28th of June, I think it was, which was a Tuesday or a Wednesday. I can't really remember. I'm getting old. But it just hit me. And when I heard that this could potentially happen, I just, something cosmic, it sounds silly, but something just went, oh, no, you don't. And I called Albert Ruel from Canadian... Uh, Get Together with Technology of Canadian Council of the Blind. And I said, Albert, we need a teleconference just as absolutely fast as you can make it happen, because here's what's going on. And, of course, Albert said, oh, my God. And within a week, we had everybody happening, and there was a teleconference of 30 people and out of that came a mailing list, and then we worked on a website and a blog explaining what was going on, and the whole process took us well into the fall, but the numbers on Facebook and everything were, I mean, at some point we had a reach of like 40,000 people or some such thing, so it just goes to show what can really happen when you say, okay, we're going to unite and we're going to do something, and there you
1: go. And you set up a website as well, correct?
3: Well, it was a blog, and we just gave it a, a, a website that pointed at the blog, but uh yeah, it, it was a blog-come-website sort of thing. We don't have that much experience with social media sort of setting up all that sort of thing, but... We just decided we had to create something that could at least get the job done, which it obviously did.
1: It did. You have a legal background, Yvonne. So obviously there's there's all this fervor, there's all of this concern, but you were able to help channel that into some sort of path forward that might challenge these standards, I take it.
2: Well, certainly we, we contemplated a number of strategies, Jonathan. First and foremost, we we focused on political strategies because that's most immediate. And we contacted uh, relentlessly uh, over many months all of our members of par- parliament of the federal government here in Canada asking for meetings, uh, writing letters, making phone calls. and And that went on right up into March of this year. But in our back pocket, we did consult with uh, some some lawyers um, who are now, they have taken our file because we don't think the fight is, just about, is, is quite over yet. Because our big concern is that the way that the standards were developed, I mean, it was 60 pages of very technical information that uh, much of was not relevant to uh, the training and use of a guide dog or other service dogs for that matter. But we felt that the standards really uh, were in opposition to human rights because human rights focuses on access, gaining access um, for people with disabilities and people who use service dogs. This this document did nothing to support that and in fact was very paternalistic, very heavy handed, uh, very, I guess, or lack of a better way to put it, big brother is watching you so be careful. Uh, so, so definitely, we use a, a variety of strategies to to get our point across.
1: Why do you think the standards have been withdrawn? Was it just sheer public pressure, or what, what, what's the what's the cause of this?
2: I'll give it a try, and maybe Tom has some perspective on it. I don't think we really know the precise answer. Uh, I think that the coalition can take some. Can take a lot of credit. I think it was we played a significant role, as I said earlier, in this constant barrage, this constant pressure, constant, you know, wanting answers. And and one of our lately one of our themes that we were um, really driving home with politicians is: look, your government really says they care about consulting with the public when before introducing legislation or policy. You have done no consultation whatsoever with service dog users on this point. So, I don't know if that resonated, but in addition, and this gets into a little more internal politics that I don't quite know, but the the agency that was working on the standards was called the Canadian General Standards Board. It's an, uh, an arms-length agency run by the federal government and the CGSB, I'll call it, set up a technical committee and that committee consisted of Service dog users, a few of them anyway, not many. Uh, trainers, um, people from government, uh, people who were concerned about animal welfare, and so on. And that committee, interestingly enough, focused and ran along quite quietly for two years under a cone of silence. They were they were sworn to confidentiality. They couldn't even consult with uh, you know their constituents or you know, people with disabilities. And Then once once, you know, it was out in the public and the standard was out for public comment and they started getting lots of feedback, suddenly there was dissension within that committee and huge disagreement. I understand, this is what I'm told. And in fact, the committee was so uh, fractured that they decided to uh, launch a complaint to the accrediting body of the CGSB, which is the Standards Council of Canada. So that complaint was on its way in terms of CGSB not following proper uh, protocol, not proper practice. So maybe that had an impact. Uh, maybe all of our, you know, concerted effort with politicians, maybe they were starting to put pressure on CGSB. It's it's hard to say, but quite suddenly. Out of the blue, we saw this notice of intent for the CGSB to withdraw from the standard-making process. Any
1: thoughts on that, Tom? Why is it that you've had the victory that you've had, do you think?
3: Well, I think what really happened was that when this came down, the full horror of it, the, the ridiculousness, just everything bad about it was so totally obvious to everybody. And I think that really what happened, there's a bit of a history in Canada. We have, had come and go a whole lot of little blind organizations who haven't generally accomplished that much. They come and go, they fight and squabble with each other. We've been in a position a lot in Canada where government has traditionally been so sick and tired of the squabbly little blind groups that their basic attitude has been, you know what, When you people finally actually come together and figure out what you want, you can let us know and we'll see what we can do because right now we're sort of permanently and constantly confused. So until you sort out, we won't do much of anything. Of course, we have our national agency who has been a monopoly for a million years, but I won't go into that. But what happened with this particular event and this whole social media thing was that for the first time in canadian history every blind group in canada worked together we're in total cooperation with each other and i think that's a lot of what did it because and now here we have you know the proof is in the pudding we all work together nobody fought or squabbled everybody just coordinated their efforts and now we have an example of what really happens when a community can come together and do that. And I really hope that this is a pivotal point in Canadian history so that we can now move forward in this kind of spirit to accomplish a lot more.
2: One thing that's really, I think, rather unique about uh, this coalition is it, it does not have any financial support. We had organizations donating time and telephone lines and so on. And we have no formal structure. So each person that was involved did what they could. Uh, Some people did a lot of administrative background work and talking to individuals to keep everybody up to date. Um, Tom did a great job on the social media and setting up the listserv. Um, I apparently chair meetings quite often, so I was uh, often asked to chair conference calls. So we just did you know, what we could without a formal structure. How long an organization can continue, you know, with that kind of uh, structure, I don't know, but it worked really well. It is a true example of, of, uh, of grassroots action. Yeah,
1: it's amazing how people can unite when there is a common cause like that. But the reason, the catalyst for this proposed standard happening hasn't gone away, right? And there is this issue throughout the Western world, it seems, where guide dogs have been so successful that it's almost like the, the old story of the little red hen, right, where people want to eat the bread without actually having to do the work to bake it in the first place. And so you have a lot of these animals calling themselves emotional support animals or service animals of any kind, and they are causing all sorts of havoc wherever they go. Now, that problem hasn't gone away. You must feel some sort of responsibility to acknowledge that and um, try to be a part of that solution.
2: Well, yes, that's right. And and I think, I think there's another aspect here. And that is that there are in Canada, at any rate, uh, a number of people with disabilities who could benefit from service dogs, especially those uh, who are experiencing, uh, you know, mental health issues that they think they could uh, receive assistance from a service dog, and there are no trainers. There are no legitimate or qualified trainers. There's no financial support for these people to access training, and there's so there's a lot of people, you know, people holding themselves out as trainers and causing a lot of damage. So clearly, there there are gaps. There is a need for a lot more work uh, in this area, and as I said originally, the um, the the, commit, the the CGSB was to set standards for military personnel returning from duty who were, who were experiencing PTSD and who, again, might benefit from a service dog. And the Legion and the government said, well, we're not going to give you a, a service dog until we know that there are standards in place. Now, my understanding is that they are going to go ahead with uh, looking at standards, as they call it, for psychiatric dogs. Seems like an odd way to put it. So that's good. But like you say, I think there are still gaps. Uh, you know, this whole idea of, of you know, fake versus legitimate um, service animals, that, that's, that's an issue. But I sometimes think when we focus specifically on that uh, end of things, we go, we go in the wrong direction. And if I may, I mean, what the coalition is saying, or many of us are saying on the coalition is, what we need to focus on is access. So for example, if somebody comes into your place of business and they have a, a dog with a proper, like either a vest or a harness or whatever, that person comes in with the dog and you you wonder, are they are they legitimate or are they fake? Use your observation skills. If that person is, if the dog is following commands, the dog is doing its job. It's not barking, it's not bothering people, it's got four four on the floor, as we say, they're not jumping on tables or anything, and, uh, you know, if you're going to a restaurant, they sit down at the table, the dog is quiet, you don't even know the dog is there, you probably have a legitimate service dog. You might, though, on certain occasions, have Fluffy the pet. But if Fluffy the pet is there, and behaving itself, um, so what? I mean I don't think many pet dogs are gonna be able to pass that test, so I'm not too worried about too many fluffies getting away with this sort of thing. Uh so I really think that's what we need to 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 look at is is behavior. And just like if I, you know, I'm a customer and I misbehave or cause a disturbance, uh, you can throw me out. And if if a dog, legit or not, is uh not behaving, throw them out. And so I think we just we have to reverse the conversation, this idea of of trying to come up with standards and registration and certification to to make sure that only legitimate, uh, you know, people with legitimate service dogs get access overcomplicates things. And I think really starts to, you know, confront human rights, because what we're finding in provinces like British Columbia is that now that everybody has to register, and I don't know if Tom's had this experience, but right. <laughs> people, are being, people are being stopped. Whereas you used to just be able to walk in and have access, now if you appear with a dog, immediately you're asked to prove your legitimacy. No other group in society has to do that anymore. Of course, we know that in the past that's happened. But the idea that now the onus is on the... Um, person using the service dog rather than on the business proving why you can't come in just seems to me wrong-headed and contrary to human rights so we in Canada have a lot to work through in terms of coming up with the right analysis I think human rights commissions have to be doing a lot more work to uh, promote and you know uphold our rights so um, that's you know there's lots more conversation to be had for sure.
3: I actually, um, this morning, you don't have to even go anywhere. We called to book buses to go to the AEBC convention on Friday in Vancouver, and they would not book that ticket till they not only knew that I had a BC gu- Guide dog, Service Dog card, but uh, they wanted that number, and they weren't going to. I had to get partner Ken to actually look at the number on the card and give it to the reservation people before they would book our ticket. And on that point, I just want to say, yes, I had the ideas behind this, but it is really my amazing partner, Ken, who did all the computer work and set up everything that happened because I don't know how to do that stuff. So I just want to not take credit for something that I could have never done without him. And I just want to acknowledge and thank him publicly for that.
1: So the situation in British Columbia... That is happening despite these standards not proceeding.
3: Yeah, it was yes. already in place.
2: And what was happening with the standards, Jonathan, is it was being done at the federal level, and and it was a it it was a would be a proposed standard if it went through, that then other jurisdictions could adopt, like uh, other government a- federal agencies, or provinces or territories could adopt so that was our concern is once it's in place even though they said oh don't worry it's voluntary no it wouldn't remain voluntary for very long because because you know businesses are really clamoring and you know really pressuring governments to adopt some kind of standard or certification process because they don't want to have to make the decision about who can come in and who can't.
1: Does that mean that what's happening in British Columbia may well be under threat as a result of the abandonment of these federal standards?
3: It's more no, likely to mean that there will be more laws in other provinces like the one in British Columbia and that this will become the standard, and that's what a lot of people are worried about.
1: So your battle yeah, isn't and, really over. I mean, like, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be confronting that now.
2: Uh, well, and that's exactly why uh, we, we have sought a legal opinion uh, from our lawyers uh in terms of looking at at the legislation that's in place in british columbia because we are worried that it other provinces they love to borrow and they would happily borrow uh, the british columbia model and uh, so we we need to be able to confront that uh as as quickly as as possible so that is the the point of our legal opinion but yeah the the, the absolutely the the whole threat is is not over there's just so much confusion out there about how to properly deal with with this issue. So we just need to keep the education going and, you know, we've got our legal challenge in our back pocket and we'll see what happens.
3: I think we have another problem too. I actually received... A pretty nasty hate mail posted to me on facebook messenger the other day and not only did it call us all a lot of unpleasant names but it said things like now every veteran that commits suicide because they don't have a dog is it's on your heads you people have ruined it for everybody etc etc and At the time, and I wish I hadn't now, but at the time I got so annoyed that I had a knee-jerk reaction, and I just pushed delete and said, this person's crazy, forget it. And you know what? I've been thinking about it ever since, and I've been thinking, no, this isn't over yet. Yes, we've done this. No, a lot of people won't understand why we did it. And to a certain extent, because we have had service animals longer than anybody else. I think we do owe it to people to get out there and to help in any way we can and to help these folks realize that, hey, you think we've done this, but no service dog team of any kind could ever meet this standard. And if you don't have the experience with service dogs, you don't understand why that might be. And I think that we could probably go a long way in leading the community and really helping our veterans and really doing useful things to make a new standard that's inclusive, that's transparent, that, I mean, this whole other process was anyone involved with it was signing a, a, an NDA a non-disclosure agreement what what kind of inclusion is
1: that there might be a case for a cross-disability coalition going forward
2: yes and in fact Jonathan we do have we do have members uh, other members of the coalition who who are other than guide dog users they they use service dogs to assist with different aspects of their disability and i really want to underscore what tom is saying i think You know, we're not going to walk away, most of us, and feel smug about it. We understand there's a huge need. We understand there are gaps. And we understand that, you know, sometimes certain people with uh, service uh, dogs get access to benefits while others do not. So, for sure, our next step, and, you know, I've already made a few calls to different people to say, okay, how can you help us get a forum together or get some mechanism? in place where we can start talking to other service dog users, because I really think we need to develop common understandings and common strategies that will assist each other. Uh, That's very, very, very important. And right now it we're very, you know, it's, it's a bit fragmented and oftentimes it's the trainer agencies that are doing the lobbying and you know, that, causes problems.
1: One of the things that saddens me immensely is when I hear people who think that no matter what they do, no matter how much injustice they perceive in the world, they can't make a difference. Nothing will change. Things are stuck. And this is why your story really inspires me because it's yet another demonstration that people getting together and fighting for what they believe in can actually change things. You mentioned the the fact that everybody came together in a way that has been unusual for the blind community in Canada. Are there any other lessons in terms of an advocacy case study that we can draw from this?
2: Well, I I think one of the things we worked very hard on within the coalition it sounds simple but respect uh because there were a lot of people who joined the coalition who really didn't have a lot of experience with political action or you know the social um you know the social analysis of disability or even experience with human rights so a lot of time was spent with people made comments that required some you know further information or discussion that that took place um, if somebody seemed to need a bit more assistance, then I then you know one of our members was very good at calling them personally, and I, I think it was just people like you said earlier. There was such a drive to, and people felt it so strongly on a personal level that these standards were just wrong and and detrimental. That you know we got over some of the the hurdles or the bumps that can sometimes you know sometimes there becomes group tussles within, you know, when you have, uh, you know, group dynamics can get in the way. And a little bit of that happened, but we always managed to, to, you know, minimize it and uh, continue to focus on, you know, the goal. And I think that's that, that was the main lesson.
1: Tom, are you going to be keeping this website current as this progresses, or do you feel that it served its purpose?
3: Uh, oh, it, it's definitely going to be there. In the fact, I've been talking... To a few of these guys and saying look it's this is a story now this is out there we're going to leave it there people should always be able to read it as an example so I've been saying to people uh, some of you guys need to write up what happened over the last couple of months in a nice narrative so that we can add to this thing a final conclusion e- explaining how the outcome happened and what was Involved in that. I think uh, if people ask the right questions, they can probably find out a certain amount more from their favorite politicians about what actually went down. And that should be documented. uh, That should be documented as just the conclusion to the chronology of the whole thing so that people will be able to go and reference the whole story as an example of what can happen when we really just get up and do this sort of thing. But there
1: will be battles ahead, right? Because you're going to try and ensure that these uh, standards or the, the, this, this, this pr- provision that has made its way into British Columbia, it doesn't make its way to other provinces. So will you be chronicling that on your website as well? Or is it now pretty much a, a static historic record of the fight over these federal standards?
3: I don't know. I, I, I always sort of say I never know what's going to happen next, so it depends who contributes and how things go, And but, but certainly we would keep adding things to the website because it is kind of a nucleus. People know about it. They go to it, so if any issues come up, uh, I think uh, hands off our harnesses needs to be a place where people can go to uh, check out and add information if it needs it.
2: Well, the coalition will certainly continue. So, <laughs> Oh,
1: yeah. Very good. You anticipated my next question, too. So give us the website again for people who'd like to check this out.
3: www.hooh.com ca hands off our harnesses
1: <laughs> very good congratulations to you both and to everybody involved in this as, as i say it's a sort of a textbook case of uh, advocacy making a difference and i appreciate you coming on the podcast to bring us updated thank you
3: very Thanks
1: much Thanks so
2: much for your interest
1: for a long time it's been said there's a book inside every one of us just waiting to come out and you know i think that's true of podcasts too You're listening to a podcast right now, so you know the power of the medium. But where to get started? Podcast hosting companies, microphones, single track, multi-track, and what about a mixer? Do you even need one? I created a four-hour tutorial called Unleash Your Inner Podcast that helps you understand what you need to do to get a podcast up and running and the various means you have of creating one. It's easier than you think when someone explains it clearly. I've been podcasting since 2004 and I'm happy to share what I've learned all from a blindness perspective. Unleash Your Inner Podcast is available for purchase and instant download at mosenorg podcasting. Unleash Your Inner Podcast today. Let's go to feedback now, and if you would like to leave your feedback for the next episode, then the way to do it, well, there are a number of ways, actually, to do it. You can drop me an email to theblindsideatmosen.org. The blindside is all one word, at mosen.org. When you do that, you are welcome to attach an audio clip to the email, if you prefer, from your PC or your phone, and you can let your own voice be heard Otherwise, feel free to write it down and I will read it. You can also call the feedback line on 719-270-5114. That number is in the United States and there are cheap ways of calling US numbers pretty much anywhere. 719-270-5114. Now, we can't play everything that we receive because, man, we're getting a lot of feedback these days and I'm certainly not complaining about that. When there is a contentious issue where there's been a bit of debate, I do my best to make sure that we play a representative sample. So if, for example, we get 70-30 in favour of a particular stance, I try to make sure that the contributions we play reflect that balance. <laughs> that said, we have got an awful lot of feedback in on this question of whether... We should expect sighted people to give up seats for us, so let's get to it. Firstly, here's an email from Rebecca Skipper, who says in part, First, let me start out by saying that I am a totally blind cane user. I refuse wheelchairs when going to the airport or Disney because I can walk and need to. If blind people want to have the same rights and privileges as everyone else, we have to take responsibility for advocating for ourselves and using these rights responsibly. Would I ask a sighted person to give up their seat? No, I can stand. But if I was seated and someone with a dog guide needed a seat, I'd gladly give it up, since I'm a cane user. Why? Well, I'm thinking about the dog. I believe we need to be as independent as possible, but blind people are not a homogeneous group. Yet often, I may be the first blind person anyone encounters. I resent the burden of having to, quote, represent, unquote, every blind person. Hi, Jonathan.
0: I'm commenting on the issue raised in your podcast about whether blind people are entitled to or should be offered or even should accept a priority seat on public transport. Personally, I don't believe that uh, blind persons who have no other mobility or physical impairment should be entitled to sit in those seats or to take a seat from anyone else. I've encountered this regularly through my life and I will always refuse the offer of a seat, whether it's a priority seat or another seat. I'd rather let someone else have that seat. I do acknowledge that a guide dog user may have an additional consideration And taking a seat and putting the dog under the seat may provide safety and comfort for the dog. The sad thing is that sometimes when I decline a seat, people become insistent. And when I again decline, they think that I'm doing the wrong thing. I need help as I'm a blind person. That's their attitude. Here's an email from Kylie Maloney here in New Zealand
1: and she says, Hi Jonathan, I'm picking that your discussion on this week's podcast regarding whether a blind traveller should expect a seat on public transport is a little more complex than you have portrayed. Firstly, let's look at the different requirements between cane and dog users. A cane user can, if required and able, easily hold on to a rail or side of a seat if necessary. I have had to do this on the odd Wellington bus or train when I lived there. They can even fold the cane away if they need an extra handhold. A dog user, on the other hand, has the dog to consider. They also typically need more space in a seat if the dog is to be at all comfortable, which is why I suspect that the London trains have a designated area for disabled travellers. There would be extra space for scooters, wheelchairs, walkers, crutches or dogs. From what you read of the article, it seems that Dr. Patel was looking for a seat in the designated area where he would likely have the space to accommodate his dog. It also seems likely that if this area was full, that many of those seated would not be disabled people who require the extra accommodation. After all, how many times do those who have the disability parking permits lament their inability to use them because their designated spaces are being occupied by drivers who don't need them. In that context, then, I'm with Dr Patel. If he was seeking a seat in a section which had been set aside for disabled people, he should rightly expect to get one unless it was full of other people who needed to sit. How likely is that, realistically? Then, there's safety to consider. I'm guessing the London rush hour is pretty intimidating for a blind traveller simply because of the number of people single-mindedly hurrying to or from work. Here in New Zealand, I simply can't imagine what that would be like. I can, however, imagine how I'd feel if I was jammed against the door of a full train with my dog. I'd be constantly afraid of what might happen should the door open. This would require my full concentration for the duration of the trip, and I would arrive at my destination stressed and exhausted. In summary then, I do think a fit and able cane using blind person should be able to manage to hold on to a seat with relative ease. A dog's requirements mean, however, that dog and handler would be more likely to need a seat, regardless of whether it's in a designated area. Further, that anyone using an area designated for disabled travellers who doesn't require the extra space should suffer some consequences, just as does the driver who abuses the disability parking spaces. Thank you very much for that, Kylie. I did actually ask Bonnie, who has spent years travelling in very busy commuter areas, such as the Boston subway system, they call it the T, about what she thinks of this whole issue. And her response was that she regularly travelled the T with her seeing-eye dog, Lizzie, standing up. And that she didn't feel that it was necessary to have these areas where a blind person with a dog has to sit. Because while I've been a guide dog handler like you, Kylie, I've not been a guide dog handler in those very, very busy environments. So I certainly was guided by Bonnie to some extent, who said, look, you know, I regularly traveled standing up on these trains with my dog. So it'll be interesting to get others' perspective on this, who do travel in very crowded environments in cities such as London, Boston, New York, etc. Hello,
4: Jonathan. It's uh, Karine from Montreal, Canada. The question about uh, having people th- giving us seats or not in subway or whatever means of transportation made me think about something that happened with me and my friend maybe like 12 years ago or no <laughs> i mean her son was born in 2005 yeah 2005 so she was pregnant and i was blind since i still am and with my guide dog and we were often taking the subway to- together and here in montreal you we have a f- big case of over altruism i mean that Sometimes people get very insistent for me to sit with my my dog and everything to take places. And well, obviously I wasn't pregnant, she was. So we were taking subway together and people were looking so insulted because when they offered me a seat, I placed myself in front of the seat and I said, okay, you can go. So she, I had my friend, was pregnant sit and people were glaring at her and being like what a horrible friend who keeps her friends standing and blah, blah blah we were like yes but she's the one pregnant hi Jonathan this is Gary Hedgepath from Phoenix Arizona
5: I agree wholeheartedly with you so while this guy was feeling sorry for himself for not having a seat he has no way of knowing who was sitting in those seats And as you pointed out, that they may have needed them for physical reasons. Blindness is not a reason for a seat on the bus. There is no reason why a person who is blind should have to sit. And I would say that nobody got up and gave him his seat shows an attitude of equanimity And in many, many ways, a very positive attitude. People on that train did not see him as incapable. They saw him as able-bodied and able to stand like the others, I'm sure, were standing on the train.
1: Here's Holger, who was in Chicago, Illinois, in the United States. And she says, as an individual who became blind when I was 19... Any time I use public transportation, be it bus or train, which in Chicago is called the L, I tended to stand up when there was no seat. Although in Chicago, in buses and on the L, the automatic announcements starts by requesting that people give their seat to pregnant women, the elderly, and people with disabilities. Now, as I'm getting older, I do take the seat if someone offers it to me. In my many years using public transportation, I always have been offered a seat by someone. This is perhaps due to people who use public transportation in Chicago always hearing the public announcements.
6: Jonathan, uh, my name is Richard. Uh, I happen to be an ordained minister and I do jail and prison ministry and have for about 25 years. Uh, Jonathan, you've been a major, major help to me with the encouragement with uh, all the accessibility equipment that you keep mentioning because I've been fighting with my... uh, iPhone, my Apple iPhone, and I'm getting more proficient in it because of your help and your, your uh, directions. Um, the interesting thing about uh, what I get to do, it's amazing how when I go to jails, uh, many of them see me as a chaplain, and those are people within the facility, but there are others uh, in staff and also uh, in, in, as officers in the facilities. Uh, they, they, oh, there's the blind guy. That's all they see. And, and uh, it, it astonishes me how little those who just see me as the blind guy, how little they know about me or what I even get to do. Uh, and and much of the time, they're really not interested. They're so tied up with what they're doing uh, within the facilities themselves. And uh, and and I go in, I teach many many hours in in facilities uh, several times a week uh, here, in, here in here in Florida. And, uh, Jonathan, I I appreciate all that you do, and uh, you're you're a great man of encouragement, and keep up the good work.
1: Hi, Jonathan. This is John Wesley Smith from Missouri in the U.S.,
7: and Carolyn's comments on Podcast 82 about Braille were right on target. I'm one of those partially sighted people that grew up reading print and have the uh, rounded shoulders and neck pain to prove it. And um, the
5: only problem for me with Braille is that I've never developed a reading speed that's very
7: fast. I can't read Braille any faster than I can read print, and I'm slow at both. So I do the vast majority of uh, my reading and uh, accessing uh, Internet and so forth with uh, audio.
5: Thanks.
6: Keep up the good work.
1: Thanks, John. And you've actually raised something that I hope we might be able to get some comments on from proficient Braille readers, and that is... Any techniques, any pointers for improving one's reading speed. I do believe that it's use it or lose it. And the more that you read Braille, the faster you will probably get. But I think it is a little bit more than that as well. And after I've spoken in public or sometimes even when people hear me reading Braille, say email messages on a podcast like this, I do get emails from people saying, how do you do that? And it's actually quite difficult for me to articulate. I do have a two handed Braille strategy So, when I'm reading Braille, I'm actually reading two different things at once, separate things with both hands. And that does help with the speed because sometimes there might be something that causes me to stop short and have another look. But hopefully, hesitation is minimized because I'm reading with the other hand. I'm sure there are some articles about improving Braille reading speed, but it would be really interesting to hear from Braille users on this subject.
3: Good morning,
5: Jonathan. John Westbrook Culling from the Eastern Shore of Maryland, U.S. Uh, I'm just calling to compliment you on your show. I caught it about a year ago, and I faithfully do not miss anything you present. I find most of it very helpful uh, in my way. Uh, I am like you. I'm blind, but not since birth, but I'm also partially deaf. Uh, and so I sympathize with that problem. I do have a question about uh, Ara. Uh, how do you hook your uh, hearing aids up? I just can't figure that one out. Uh, do you use a Bluetooth headset or something of that nature? I'm considering it, but it is expensive, and I'm not sure I can afford it, but uh, I'm willing
1: to consider it. Thank you for your generous comments, John. Really appreciate that. If you go to the blog at mosen.org slash blog and do a search on the Mosen Consulting site for the words now hear this, there are two articles that I wrote back in 2013 about the hearing technology that I'm using. I'm about to do a complete refresh, which is a bit scary, but um, that describes what's going on at the moment. But to answer your question specifically, I have found generally that Bluetooth is too laggy for the kind of speed I like to work at. In other words, if I'm connected through some sort of Bluetooth technology to my iPhone and I'm swiping through or using the virtual keyboard, there's just enough lag between when I tap something and when I hear what I've tapped that it's disconcerting to me. And other blind people have reported this with technologies like AirPods as well, that if you're a proficient iPhone user, for example, looking at the iPhone, that the lag is just enough to be annoying and I found that with anything Bluetooth connected to my hearing aids that I've used instead then I have a cable I've got behind the ear hearing aids they happen to be from Phonak but this technique works with a number of behind the ear hearing aids and on the battery door attached to the base of it is what they call an audio shoe and on that audio shoe there is a standard connector for hearing aids known as a Euro connector And I have a cable that has two Euro connectors at the end, one for your left ear and one for your right ear. And at the other end of that cable, it terminates in a 3.5 millimeter plug. Now, with the iPhone, you now, of course, with new iPhones, require the Lightning to 3.5 adapter to be plugged into your phone. And then you can plug the 3.5 millimeter cable in that runs directly to your hearing aids. Now, the advantage of this is that you've got absolutely no latency. It's like having a pair of headphones connected, but going directly in to your hearing aids. And then it's a a case of working with the audiologist to ensure that you have the programs that you need. So I have this cable working on two programs. One turns the microphones completely off, and I use that in the studio environment so that I can... It's like having really thick headphones on your ear because... I don't hear any external noise other than what's coming through the mixer and the microphone's connected to the mixer. So that's really important for audio production work. The other program I have allows me to hear environmental sounds so that I can just listen to my iPhone when I'm out and about. And that is what I use for Ira. And so I'm able to still hear environmental sounds, hear what's around me, through the hearing aids microphones, but also hear the IRA agent very clearly. And so, in some ways, it's a bit of an advantage to um, have the hearing impairment in this case because no background noise is being blocked out. I'm still hearing it as clearly as I can with my hearing impairment, but also hearing the IRA agent in both ears. So I hope that helps. And I uh, thank everybody who has sent comments, and there are just. A lot of them. So we've played a, a selection, and I appreciate you uh, being in touch. Remember, the way to do that is to call the feedback line on 719-270-5114. That's 719-270-5114. Or you can email, either with an audio attachment or just writing the email down,
0: theblindsideatmosin.org. Our place, our issues, The blindside. With Jonathan Moser.
1: As promised, we're going to take a look now at a new feature that has been unveiled by Amazon, and this is called Alexa Blueprints. This is a new tool that allows anybody, even if you've never written a line of computer code in your life, to make your own skills for the Amazon Echo family and any other device that has Alexa built in for your own personal use. I'm going to show you the process of how you make these. But before I do, I want to give you an example of how effective and fun they can be by running a skill that I have created myself. And I was able to do this within about 30 minutes of first reading in an article in The Verge technology publication, who I think broke the story that the Amazon Blueprints feature was available. I'm in my studio with the Echo Dot connected to the mixer, and I'm going to be talking to the device quite a bit. So if you have an Amazon Echo device around, you may like to mute it so that I don't set yours off, particularly since you will have no way of enabling these skills because they only work on the account within which they were created. I'll give you a quick demo of what this means in practice, and then we'll talk about the kind of skills that you can create using this feature and then how to create it. So let's talk to my device, Alexa, open guest information.
8: Oh, hi. How can I make your stay at Mosin Towers easier?
1: Where do I find the toilet?
8: Mosin Towers has three toilets. Guests generally use the toilet upstairs near the back door. When exiting the kitchen and living room area, walk down the hallway until you find hard flooring on your right. Turn right, and the toilet is on your left. It contains a shower as well. The second upstairs toilet is in the bathroom, opposite the master bedroom. Finally, there is a toilet located downstairs, to your left as you reach the bottom of the stairs. It contains a shower. What else would you like to know?
1: Where are the TV remotes?
8: The two primary remote controls are on top of the Sonos Play bar in the living room. The large remote control device is for the Sony TV. This is a smart TV which has a screen reader enabled. This makes the TV guide in some of the apps accessible. Hold down the middle recessed button on the top row to talk with Google Assistant. The remote control for the TV can also operate devices connected to it, such as the Xbox and Apple TV. The second remote control is much smaller, and it controls the Apple TV. Because of its size and how easy it is to lose it, we appreciate you putting it back where you found it after use. Thank you. What else would you like to know?
1: How do I use the Sonos?
8: Mozen Towers is packed with Sonos audio products. You'll find a full Sonos 5.1 surround sound system in the living room, a Sonos player in each bedroom, the studio, and in the master bathroom. The latter took quite some lobbying on Jonathan's part, that I can tell you. You can control the Sonos system by downloading the free Sonos app for your iPhone, iPad, Android device or PC. It's fully accessible on all platforms. Just run the app when connected to Wi-Fi and you'll be connected. In addition to using the apps, once you learn the names of each room, you can ask me to play material from certain specific services, like Spotify and TuneIn. For example, you can say, play Mushroom FM in the dining room. What else would you like to know? Stop. If you have any other questions about Mosin Towers, or anything at all for that matter, just ask me.
1: So as well as being fun, you can see that this is actually quite useful because if you have visitors who are staying house sitting for you, perhaps, or you have Amazon Echoes all over the place, as we do, and you just want to create a really useful skill where people can ask questions That you know they are likely to ask on a regular basis and for example another one that amazon cites when giving an example about how to use this particular template is where's the toilet paper if you run out of that you really want to know right we could also add things such as uh, how to feed bonnie's guide dog a whole bunch of things really there's no end to what you can add here for visitor information Let's take a look at how I created this skill, how I can maintain it, and the other Amazon Blueprints that you can work with at the moment. I believe I counted about 21 or 22 Blueprints, and apparently more are coming. You can create skills using Alexa Blueprints by visiting its website, and that is blueprints.amazon.com. Now, I need to mention right now that for this to work at this point, you do need to have an Amazon account in the U.S. store, And you need to ensure that your Amazon Alexa device is set to U.S. English. If you set it to another language, if you are in another part of the world for your account, then at the moment, sadly, Blueprints do not work. And this is one of the reasons why we keep maintaining our Amazon account in the U.S. because Alexa is just so much more capable in the U.S. than anywhere else right now. I have Google Chrome open, and if I press the JAWS key with T to read the title, Alexa Blueprints. I have Alexa Blueprints on the screen. I'll go to the top of the page. Alexa Blueprints. And let's have a
7: look at what's here. Navigation region. Visited link Amazon Alexa skill blueprints. List of three items.
1: Visited link home. Link skills you've made. Link help center. I'm signed in to my Amazon account at this point, And because I created that visitor information skill, there's an option here called skills you've made. I'm going to choose that now. Link skills you've made.
7: I'll press enter. Alert. You are accessing Blueprints portal from outside us. You are accessing Blueprint's portal from outside us. Please note that skills created through the portal are only accessible in English Us language. Visit settings in your Alexa mobile app to change your device language to English Us. Alexa Blueprints. Three regions, three headings and ten links. You. Nice and accessible. Let's navigate by hitting. Skills you've made heading level one. And down arrow. Link graphic false. Blank. Heading level four link guest information. Blank. Link created April 20th, 2018. Blank. Link Alexa. Open guest information. I'll navigate back up. Main link blank, link create blank, heading level
1: four link guest information. And there is the name of the skill, guest information. If I press enter on that, we'll open the information about the skill. Alert, you are
7: accessing blueprint. Yeah, yeah, we're getting that alert, so we'll just let the page load. Guest information, heading level one button. Status, ready to use, created, April 20th, 2018 232 a.m. Blueprint, link house guest. Try saying, Alexa, open guest information. Edit button. Here's the all-important edit button. I'll press the space bar to activate it. Alexa blueprints. Read only. Where to find things. Item name edit.
1: Now we can take a look at the building blocks of this skill. So the whole concept behind this really cool way to make an Alexa skill so easily for your personal use is basically you fill in a form. And so you have to fill in what people can ask and how Alexa should respond? It's really as simple as that, and it's all just web-based. So I go to the top of the page, Alexa blueprints, and navigate
7: by hitting using your skill heading level three. Now we'll down arrow. Personal skills are private. Alexa only offers this info when someone opens the skill on your devices. Blank group start where to find things. When asked where is the dot dot dot, Alexa says the location and any notes. Item name
1: required at a TV remote. So you recall that in the demonstration. I asked the question of Alexa, where do I find the TV remote? And it gave me the detailed answer. Obviously, I had to write that answer in. And I wrote that answer in the edit field just
7: below this. Location. Required edit. The two primary remote controls are on top of the Sonus Play bar in the living room. And now down arrow some more. Note optional. The large remote control devices for the Sony TV. This is a smart TV which has a screen reader enabled. This makes the TV guidance. And we heard all that
1: before. So it's just a simple case of the contents being populated in this edit field. I'll down arrow some more. X button. There's an X button here. And I'm pretty sure that if I activate that, I can delete this particular line, which I don't want to do because it took me a while to write all that in. Item name. Required edit toilet. And there's the toilet one. Location required. Node op- option. X button. And item button. And you can add an item. So you can add. I don't know whether there's any kind of limit to this. I haven't found one yet. But you can add a lot of items to this skill. So what I thought that Bonnie and I would do over time is maybe add one or two items a day just for fun as a kind of a hobby to see how comprehensive we can make this skill for visitors. And if we did that, if we each add one item per day, Then within a few weeks, we will have the most comprehensive guide to Mosin Towers. Group end. Group start how to do things. And here's the start of another group. Google Chrome is reading all that uh, RE information very well. And the next group relates to how to do
7: things. When asked how do I dot dot dot, Alexa says the steps in any notes. Task. Required edit. Lock the door. Okay, how do I lock the door? Steps. Required edit. Both the front and back doors have simple buttons to lock the door. Press the button on the inside of the door. Okay, so we've got the
1: information there and it will go on. Node optional. Node optional. X button. Task. Required edit. Use the Sonus. So you can see how simple this is. It's just a case of taking the time to type in the information that you want and the response. And you've got a skill. Stats. Required.
7: node option. Note optional. X button. Task. Required edit. Connect to Wi-Fi. Requ-
1: note no, X button task required edit operate the couch I can't help showing this one off it was fun writing this one so let's go back into the skill Alexa open guest information
8: Oh hi how can I make your stay at Mosen Towers easier?
1: How do I operate the couch?
8: Yeah crazy huh At Mosen towers even the living room furniture is smart. The couch and the armchairs come equipped with USB ports and power outlets. On the armrest, you'll find a series of buttons. The bottom button resets the couch to an upright position, like a regular chair. The second button from the bottom extends the footrest and reclines the couch. Hold it down until you get to the level of incline you like, then release. The third button from the bottom moves the headrest of the couch to a more upright position, while the button above it reclines the headrest. The top button turns on and off the light. But you know, just press the buttons, see what they do, and have fun. Bonnie and Jonathan do.
1: Alright, so... What else
8: would you like to know? Stop. If you have any other questions about Mosin Towers, or anything at all for that matter, just ask me.
1: What an arrow?
7: Steps. Required edit. Yeah. Crazy, huh? Node option. Node optional edit. X button. Add how to button.
1: Group end. So that you can add more how to's by pushing the add how to button. Group start when asked for contact info. Alexa says this list. And you can add contact information. So I'm obviously not going to put that in the demo, but we have contact information here for Bonnie and me. So if anybody who's staying here needs to get in touch with us, they can. And we also add contact information for family members nearby and friends who may be able to assist. Step one content. Step two, experience, list and nesting lab next, experience button. So that was step one of the creation process, which was the content. You've obviously got to have content in your skill before you can do anything useful. So we have some content and now we can activate the next button, which takes us on to step two, which is called experience, the user experience, if you will. Next, experience button. And the page is loading. I don't think I'm going
7: to get any feedback about that, but it has changed, I think. Customize Alexa's greetings. The first time they open the skill, Alexa says this message, edit, required, contains text. And what does it say? Group required, edit, Kayaora and welcome to the Mosen Towers Visitor's Guide. Bonnie and Jonathan hope you enjoy your stay. As you know, I'm Alexa, and not only can I answer common questions about where to find things and how things work around Mosin Towers, I can help you with all kinds of stuff. Ask away. So you
1: can put a lot of personality into this. Really, it's just your imagination that's the limit here.
7: Group start every additional time they open the skill. Alexa picks one random message. Required edit. Hope you're enjoying your visit to Mosin Towers. How can I help? X button. Required edit. Well, hello. What can I help you find at Mosin Towers? And we've heard Alexa saying that a couple of times. X button. We can delete that one if we're sick of it. Required edit. Oh, hi. How can I make your stay at Mosin Towers easier? X button. Add button. Group end.
1: We can add a whole bunch of these as well just to give it a bit of variation. Exit.
7: Customize Alexa's farewell. When your sitter closes the skill, Alexa says this message. Required edit if you have any other questions about Mosin Towers, or anything at all for that matter, just ask me. List of two items. Step one, content. Step two, experience. List and nesting. Next, update
1: skill button. And we'll choose the next button here. Next, update skill button. And this is essentially, if you think about writing a Word document, for example, so you've alert, got... Alert.
7: Your skill is getting ready to use. Your skill is getting ready to use. This takes a couple of minutes. While you wait, make sure you're logged into your Alexa-enabled device with the same account you used to make this skill. You can check your account
1: settings in the Alexa app. So great feedback there, that alert popping up from Chrome, and Jaws is speaking that, and uh, essentially it's saving, it's compiling. We haven't made any changes, so we won't notice any difference. But as I say, this is like writing a Word document, essentially. You've got your content. If you were creating this from scratch... Your skill is getting ready to use. Yeah, so it's telling me it's still happening. If you were creating this from scratch, then you would be asked to give the skill a name and you have to be careful about the name that you give it. And sometimes it will rebuff you. It won't accept certain types of names. It's trying to make sure that you use a name that is easy for Alexa to recognize with a range of voices and accents. And so it will give you some guidance in that regard. And it does take a while to save, I don't know whether that's because everybody and their banana is trying this at the moment because it's a new feature. But eventually it does save and the skill becomes active and available immediately on any Alexa device that is logged in with the account that created it. The first time you create a skill, you will have to become an Alexa developer. And that's just a one-off process where you agree to the terms and conditions and they upgrade your account and give you development privileges. It would be really interesting to see if, in future, they find some way of expanding this. Obviously, Alert. I wouldn't. You are accessing blueprint. I wouldn't want the Tower skill all over the internet for people to get at. But there might be certain other things I would like to create this way that I would like to make available. And so, if they uh, expand this and find it popular, perhaps we will see a time when you can publish some of these skills for the general public to use. I'm going to go to Chrome's address bar and enter the URL for the main portal page. So we'll go to blueprints.amazon.com.
7: Alert alert. You are at. Yeah, Let's Alex visited link amazon list of 3 visited link home, visited link skills you link help center. List end. This help information available should you need it? List of one items. Hi, Jonathan Mosen, list end. Navigation, blank. Heading level one, Alexa, open our family trivia. Heading level three, gather your family and play together as you brush up on your family facts. Try pet sitter button, next button, previous button. Next, blank. Heading level three, you are accessing blueprints port, blank, featured blueprints, heading level three, link, graphic custom QA icon, blank. Heading level four, link, custom QA. Heading level five, link, customize Alexa's response to your questions.
1: That's a pretty basic skill, actually, and if you wanted to get started, that's a pretty easy one to play with because essentially you type in the question, you type in the answer that Alexa should give, you save the skill. It's as simple as that. So you can use it for all sorts of things. It could be a fun thing like asking, you know, who is the best dad in the world or anything like that, Uh, or it could be something more useful. Fairy tale heading level four link. Oh, this is
7: nice. Heading level five link, create an interactive prince and princess themed tale. How does it work? See how easy it is to create a skill with blueprints. Watch video. Link graphic house guest icon. And that's the house guest one. House guest heading, which is the one that we've been playing with. Welcome your guests with a guide to your home and neighborhood heading level five link. Quiz heading level four link. Heading level five link, challenge your friends with open-ended questions. Link graphic doubles trouble icon. Blank. Play to find out which couple knows each other best heading level 5 link. Fun and games heading level 3. Inspirations heading level 4 link. Heading level 5 link. Cure it a list of your favorite motivational quotes. Burns heading level 4 link. Heading level 5 link. Roast your friends and family with lighthearted burns. First letter heading level 4 link. Heading level 5 link. Play a game of categories starting with a certain letter. Family jokes heading level 4. Heading level 5 link. Create a list of your favorite jokes for when you need a laugh. Trivia heading level 4 link. Heading level 5 link. Create a multiple choice trivia game on any topic. Let's have a look at how this one would work. So we'll press enter. Alert. You are accessing Blueprints portal from outside. Yep. Alexa, you are accessing Blueprint. i got the message, mate. Trivia heading level one, blank. Create a multiple choice trivia game on any topic, blank. Make your own button, blank. Heading level one here a sample
1: of trivia, clickable. So there's the button. I'm going to see if we can hear this sample now.
8: Alexa, open colorful trivia. Welcome to the most colourful trivia game around. One to four players can play. How many are playing today? Two. Player one, could you please tell me your name? Desiree. Hi, Desiree. Hi, hope you do great. Please say Alexa undo if I got your name wrong. Player two, could you please tell me your name? Carol. Glad you're here, Carol. Hope you do well. All right, let's start. Answer each question as quickly as you can. First to five points at the end of a round wins. If you would like to undo an answer, please say undo to try again. This first question is for Desiree. What does CMYK stand for? Is the answer one, Cranberry. Mauve, yellow, khaki, two, cyan, magenta, yellow, key, or three. Colors make you cool, two. Right on. You now have one point. CMYK refers to the four inks used in some color printing, cyan, magenta, yellow, and key, or black.
1: And that's where the video ends. So it's very user-friendly because they show you what the effect of the skill is. And that gives you a chance to preview it and think, yeah, I'd like to customize something like this. And if you get enthused about it and you want to create your own trivial multiple choice quiz, then all we need to do is find the button that says, make your own button, make your own. And let's go through a
7: little bit of that process. Alexa Blueprints, read only, customize the quiz, question,
1: edit, required contains text jaws just popped right up it popped me into the edit field and read the prompt and do we have anything in the edit text right now who won the
7: academy award for best actress in the year 2010 yes so they have some examples filled in i'll press the tab key checkbox not checked required edit who won the checkbox not checked required edit meryl streep button checkbox checked required edit sandra bullock button checkbox not checked required edit penelope cruz button add answer button Follow-up fact. She won Best Actress for her role in the movie The Blind Side, which told the story of football player Michael Oher. X button. Question. Now you can delete that
1: question by pressing the X button, and you'll notice that there are checkboxes beside each answer. And the correct answer is the one that has the checkbox checked. This is just super cool what Amazon has done with this. And another thing about this that I do like, not only can you make some quite useful or fun skills, because skills are useful and fun, but it also may encourage some people to explore going further into this and writing their own code when they see the joy of creating something that even their family members are using. The thing about this is that, The Alexa skills, there are so many of them that you can choose from and it can be almost a little overwhelming at times. They add a lot of functionality to the device. But what these can do is add personalization and that's really important in a product like this. It can make it really relevant and personal to you. So if you have a U.S., Amazon account, it isn't necessary to be residing in the US, although you'll be bugged about it as you (laughs) hear there, but it is necessary to have an account in the Amazon US store, then head over to blueprints, plural, blueprints.amazon.com and sign in and have a go at creating these skills.
0: Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting, on the web at mosin.org.